0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I have not one, but two incredibly exciting guests this week. And the first is the best, of course. Right, Bess?
1: (laughs) Yes. I'm so happy to be here. It's always great to be on the Hive. Best Levin, welcome
0: back to the show. Um, uh, So before Bess comes on and talks to us about all the craziness going on in the world this week, uh, and there's (laughs) a lot of craziness this week, it's like a more crazy week than usual. Um, Yep. Uh after best, we have uh, Rob Fishman, who's coming on. He is a former tech person who sold a company to Twitter for more money than I'll ever make in my whole life. And, <laughs> uh, and then came to Hollywood to try to disrupt it. And uh, we're going to talk about why Hollywood is the, one of the most uh, ridiculous industries on earth and how it manages to... Uh, to survive somehow. Uh, We'll get into it. It's a a great, fascinating conversation. Uh, Bess, over to you. Yes. Um, All right, where should we start? Pelosi, Barr, Julian Assange,
1: Jack Dorsey. I think we have... I think we have to start with Dorsey because I'm worried about him because I assume it's been, you know, several days since he's um, eaten anything.
0: So the story you're talking about uh, is Jack (laughs) Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, who I wrote a book about many years ago, uh, was interviewed this week um, and somebody pulled together a bunch of his tweets and, and uh, was CNBC, right? Is that what, is that right? They did this i on? believe
1: it was cnbc yeah he had uh, appeared on a fitness podcast a
0: fitness podcast of all places because that's what you do <laughs> yes. when you're the ceo of two public right. uh companies uh so nothing
1: but time <laughs>
0: especially when the ceo of twitter so tell us a little bit about some of the things that were on uh, that dorsey said and i will tell you why they're all bullshit
1: So in terms of diet, he apparently, according to him, he only eats one meal a day, and that's around dinner time. Um, I think it's, you know, some sort of uh, small salad maybe. I think he possibly said a little bit of dark chocolate because obviously that's, you know, that's a popular thing to do, one square of dark chocolate. Um, And he, rather than letting himself, you know, Uh, indulge a little bit on the weekends he doesn't eat on the weekends at all so he does a full weekend fast so essentially he is
0: just surviving on air right now
1: Uh, right exactly yeah He also uh, he walks to work, which is great, but you know he's he's not getting a lot of calories in, so that's somewhat worrisome. And he also uh, I think he sits in an ice bath, and then there's a sauna. There's a lot of sweating, and it's you know the internet is extremely worried that he has an eating disorder, and I'm I'm a little bit worried about him too. Although it feels very very tech broy, he's very into. I think, like the idea of punishing himself, you know, he had that weird silent retreat that he said was really painful, but also great. So I think this is part of that.
0: (sighs) Okay, well, here's where I'm going to throw a little (laughs) ice on the sauna. So one of the things he said, and look, I've known Dorsey for a long time, and Mm -hmm. the the thing is, the thing that's so frustrating about him is that he's actually a super smart guy, and he is, he does incredible things, he does incredible work, Mm -hmm. but. Uh, he always has to kind of push things a little bit too far. Right. And so, for example, yeah. his um, uh, his sauna that he said he takes, so he said that he does three saunas at, for 15 minutes apiece, um, yeah. and uh, they are 220 degrees. Uh, here's okay, the first where I'm going to go, eh, bullshit. If you actually, if the, <laughs> this is, and this is the part that bothers me. It's not that Dorsey said it, it's that the CNBC mm-hmm. reporter and everyone else who picked it up was like, oh, he takes three fifteen minute, 220 degree uh, saunas. Um, right. If you bother to Google it, the last person to do a 230 degree sauna, which was uh, in 2010, was in there for six minutes and died from burns. And another person <laughs> that was in the same sauna for six minutes was in like uh, had to be taken f- air flown to the hospital. Like you cannot go into a sauna of 220 degrees for 45 minutes without dying. So, so you think he's full of shit? I think the whole thing is full of shit. I do not believe that you can survive <laughs> off one fucking square of chocolate and a salad and not eat on weekends and go in and out of ice baths and walk backwards to work on your tiptoes. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry, it just bothers me because Silicon Valley, these journalists, I wouldn't even call them journalists, half of them, it's like they just write whatever these people say. It's like, do a little fucking homework.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right, sorry, I just had
0: my... So we're calling
1: you out, Dorsey. We don't believe your sauna, your sauna tales, your sauna regime... Um. Yeah, he's yeah. also uh, and and, and also and let's.
0: I'm sorry. Just one more thing. No one. No. Yeah. No one on Earth. And there is not a single person on Earth that can eat just one square of dark chocolate. Okay. And I <laughs> am true. saying this from experience. I buy like this fancy dandelion black chocolate, and I yeah. I end up eating the whole bar. And you just can't oh, do it. Oh, Me too.
1: I don't even when I'm like buying one of those you know seven dollar bars of chocolate i just i at this point i just go into it assuming i'm eating that whole thing in one sitting
0: exactly exactly this is you know this this is just so here's what i'm gonna say is what's really going on that dorsey probably takes like a limo to work you know one of those ones with a hot tub (laughs) in the back okay yeah he um he probably eats like steak for breakfast and uh and uh He probably doesn't eat just one piece of dark chocolate. I bet you he, like, drinks it. I bet you he he just pours it (laughs) all over himself and licks it off like a pussycat. Yeah. The whole thing. I'm calling bullshit. We're on to him. We're on to him. All right. Let's move on to more important things. um, Okay. uh, Because there are a few more important things. So, um, uh, what's going on? Can you explain a little to me about what is going on with Barr and Trump and the Mueller report and... If we're going to see it, and if it's just going to be a bunch of blacked out pieces of paper,
1: yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it seems like, so obviously, as everyone knows, Mueller submitted his report, was it two weeks and out, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? It feels I, I have no sense of time anymore in this era forty five um, years ago
0: and dog yeah. years and trump years
1: he. Right. He submitted it. And then a few days later, so the report was something like 300 pages. And then Barr submitted a four page summary of it, which, you know, that's one thing. And so he said that Mueller did said did not find um, evidence of collusion or you know, enough evidence that he could build a case and he didn't draw a conclusion on whether Trump um, obstructed justice. So maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Mm -hmm. Mueller is saying, I don't know. Um, Barr took it upon himself to say that he was not going to charge Trump with obstruction of justice. And Uh, A few people find that somewhat shady because back in June he wrote uh, or he sent an unsolicited letter to the Justice Department, 19 pages, saying this whole idea that Mueller is investigating uh, obstruction of justice is is totally bullshit. He shouldn't be allowed to do this, blah, blah, blah. So not that surprising that given the choice between charging Trump with obstruction or not, he went with not. Um, and so,
0: so he... Well, mm-hmm. so, so there's been a few people out there this week that have said things like, you know, it, why wouldn't Mueller speak up? You know, I mean, he spent right. his whole team. He spent two years you know, exhaustively interviewing all these people. It's a three, right. two, three hundred 300 page document. It's, um, yeah. Uh, it, is he just going to kind of let this play out, do you think? Or is he going that's to... That's kind
1: of, that's what it seems like. You know, he never talks to reporters at all in his entire career. He never does. They, there were no leaks this entire time from his people. Um, and so, you know, I obviously understand and kind of agree with the people who are frustrated by him who are saying wait what's going on here um it kind of seems i i want to believe that he is like you know what i know what's in this thing and it's going to come out and i'm just going to let it play out um because it definitely seems like there's probably stuff that's not going to reflect well on trump in there um i believe Barr said this week that next week be a redacted um, version of it sent to Congress. I think he said that they'll never see a fully unredacted one. Um, and Nancy Pelosi uh, is not happy about that. And I think she said, yesterday we're going to get our hands on it one way or another. She is not a fan of William Barr. <laughs> she, uh, you know, has basically more or less called him uh, a Trump toady, said he's going off the rails, um, and that she doesn't trust him at all. I mean, she... That's a verbatim quote. She said, "I don't trust him at all. I trust Mueller." So, and you know, yesterday I think people were pretty upset with Barr for kind of indulging in Trump's most absurd conspiracy theories that his campaign was spied on, um, and he said that he is uh, going to be investigating that. Barr is so that's that's interesting.
0: Well, so what do you think? So, so is there a world where um, the you know someone on the special counsel? Uh of course, not Mueller, but is there a will where where right. they where they just leak the whole thing, or is that just too dangerous?
1: I mean, I would think it would be dangerous, but you know there were there was um I th- believe it was in the New York Times um that piece earlier this week where i I think it was uh coming from people on Mueller's team saying they were not happy with sort of the White House their whole uh Total exoneration uh, spiel and not happy with Barr and so yeah I think maybe obviously it'll never come from Mueller but I think there would be a chance that people on his team will just they'll just start leaking stuff perhaps
0: okay all right let's move on to okay. um, to another topic in the news this week um, Trump's taxes uh, we heard yes. we heard that. Um, <laughs> that uh the so what's happened and where are we and are are they going to see the light yeah. of day or
1: well uh the house committee uh they requested them um and Trump immediately uh had his his lawyer send a letter to I believe the IRS and possibly also the treasury saying you cannot do this. The Justice Department needs to review this request, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was testifying this week. And while he said that he intends to follow the law, um, he apparently believes that Congress doesn't really have a case here. And he is one of Trump's most loyal stooges. So I think he will do what he can to. Protect Trump's tax returns. So do you? Do you think that
0: they will come out, or do you think it's impossible? I mean,
1: I, I mean, I think that it's going to be a big legal battle, and like possibly go to the Supreme Court.
0: So there's a, if you look at um, at what's going on with the Trump administration right now, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, there is currently all, there are currently all these vacant positions. The defense secretary is vacant, DHS secretary is vacant, UN ambassador (laughs) is vacant, FEMA director is vacant. Everything. Now the Secret Service director is vacant. ICE director, DHS director, deputy, so on and so forth. I mean, I can just keep going. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's I'm not even sure that there's a president that's not there <laughs> in the in the in the office. But mentally, mentally, um, do you is this a strategy um, or, a, or or is this just a byproduct?
1: It feels like a byproduct to me, you know, it doesn't seem, there, there's always all this talk of when this White House or this administration does something uh, crazy or whatever it is that maybe they're actually playing three-dimensional chess, Um I, I think it's a byproduct. I don't know. It's I, I do think in terms of perhaps like the DHS um, vacancies, that is a little more strategic because it just seems like Stephen Miller just wants to get rid of everyone who <laughs> won't uh, throw infants in fencing cages and just remake DHS in his own white, ragey image. But the other <laughs> stuff is just... <laughs> it's just
0: white, ragey you know, image. I
1: think it's just... i think the other stuff is just a total shit show it's it's like amateur hour
0: yeah it's beyond amateur hour i think it's um yeah 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 okay well this leads me to um we have a couple more questions and then we'll let you get back to uh uh you know your very
1: important work, your
0: ice baths uh (laughs) and 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 nibbling on one piece of chocolate as you walk to work (laughs) 15 miles uphill to
1: ration it
0: um do you uh do you think that um Trump we, I know we can't talk about like who's going to win 2020 but do you think that Right. I, one thing that I'm a little nervous about and um and I think is probably what is going to happen is so there's a there was an incident today where Trump uh, uh Lou Dobbs had a um he was doing his usual garbage show and he put on <laughs> a graphic uh, I actually went on Lou Dobbs once and he was a really nice guy and then, wow! And then I like so nice and thoughtful and kind. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I, I like saw him on his show the next day, and I was like, "Wait, that was the guy I had a conversation with." He just like, <laughs> seems like a, like there's like two different Lou Dobbs. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, also, his studio is really old and danky and looks like it hasn't been updated in a, a long time.
1: Not surprising. Um,
0: but uh, the so. When you look at yes, so yesterday, today, whatever it was, um, Lou Dobbs had um, posted this graphic, and it said that um, Trump had a fifty-five percent approval rating um, and a fifty-eight percent rating uh, approval rating for the economy. So, so Trump then retweets it and says, "Amazing! Look how amazing I am!" (laughs) Right, uh, with a screenshot of it. It turns out that whoever, whatever person decided to put that graphic up either lied or was a moron I'm going to probably go with right. both and it turns out that that 55% right. number with the, was the disapproval rating and oh that,
1: that's amazing
0: and that he has a uh, a 43% approval a 41% approval rating and, and most people disapprove right. of what he's doing uh, and only a 31% mm-hmm. like staunch approval rating uh, which is the same 31% mm-hmm. that would vote for him no matter what happens so anyway so right. now Trump's not going to go correct that Right, uh, so no, of all of his not. all of his followers and everybody now sees that he has a fifty five percent approval rating, and he probably will go to bed tonight believing that too. So the question For is, sure. do you think that when we kind of as we start to head into twenty twenty, and you've written you wrote a story uh, uh, recently about how Trump says that now that he's the, he's the the staunchest person there is on uh, on the environment, which is total bullshit. Yes, do you think that <laughs> that that the Democrats Will have to start to lie about things too, or or something will happen that will that will change the way the 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 all the fake stuff coming out of the right will affect how the left yeah. responds.
1: I don't know. I mean, obviously, we don't want them to stoop to Trump's level in terms of the lies and just the completely in unhinged statements and stuff like that. But I i mean, I am very worried about 2020. Um, because clearly, Trump and his team, their strategies to lie about everything. Obviously, you uh, referenced the story from the other day about how uh, they're going, they, they've realized that among swing voters, not the base, obviously, but swing voters actually do care um, about climate change and not wanting to turn the planet into a <laughs> urinal off the highway. Um, and so th- they've just decided they're going to say, I've been amazing for the environment. Look at everything I've done. And they just, uh, they're just they just going to lie about everything. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think Democrats will turn to that. Maybe they will. I don't want them to. I want them to win. I, I, I don't know. I'm, but I, I'm nervous about 2020, Nick. That's, that's where this is. <laughs>
0: yeah i think that uh i'm i'm terrified about it um i think that yeah. um it's going to be a uh um it's just a it's just gonna be a totally a, just a shit show um right across across the board um yeah uh all right so last question um that yes. was uh, uh finally after after years of being holed up in the uh in the Ecuadorian embassy, Julian Assange uh-huh. uh, looked like a madman as he was dragged out. Oh my god! Today, uh, that video footage—he literally, it looks like it looks like Willy he, Won- he looks like Willy Wonka if he like went into a retirement home and uh, someone. He
1: looks like he's been living under a bridge. Yeah, it was a incredible before and after.
0: Yeah, do you, so. Um, and then, of course, Trump tweets, "I don't know what WikiLeaks is," um, or something along <laughs> those He said, "He said, I, yeah, he said he didn't know anything about WikiLeaks." Do you do you yeah. think that um, uh, the, what we saw happen in 2016 was um, we saw all these outside influences kind of trying to influence the election? Uh, when sure. you look at 2020, you know, there while the the highest level of our government. Um, will be happy to do anything they can to win it seems like there are actually genuinely good people still working in the government lots and lots of them yeah. that are doing things yeah. uh, to, to to advert that do you think that you know with people like um uh, like Assange no longer going to be in the picture and, and all these mm-hmm. and, and these and the all the people that were were swept up in the indictments uh, around Mueller right. like you know Roger Stone and all those folks do you think that there's a chance that we actually might see more uh, normalcy I guess from this election when it comes to bad actors specifically on US soil or will there be other uh, squirmy wormy people that will just rise to the occasion
1: like do I think that Donald Trump Jr. is just going to be back <laughs> to his old ways for yes. 2020. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you would think that uh, hopefully lessons would be learned from people who would like to avoid um, indictments, et cetera. But then, you know, when it comes to people like Donald Trump Jr., I think it's it's full steam ahead on the old strategy because, you know, they they got away with it last time. Why not? Why not? Uh go two for two. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that there could still be people on Team Trump who, you know, it's these people who who think they can get away with anything. Um, maybe they'll be slightly less uh, obvious about it, but maybe not.
0: All right. Well, on that note, best Levin, it's time for us to go and sit in a 750-degree sauna and then jump into Can't a negative 5,000-degree ice bath, which is what you and I do every day. Uh, yes. Uh, before we um, uh, do our handstand uh, walk to work, uh, it's
1: how we get our best ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a secret sauce.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Bess. This is a fascinating Thank conversation, as me. always. And uh, stick around uh, for uh, Rob Fishman as we talk about Hollywood and how it deserves to be disrupted and if that will ever happen. Hi. It's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. How do I sound, Rob? Uh, like someone who's, professional, like someone who's had five cups of coffee. I today. have had five cups of coffee because I got a new cappuccino machine. But let's let's just skip that. So, okay, I'm going to start by before I explain who you are, uh, I'm going to explain why you're here. So, I have been covering different industries that have been disrupted for the last 15, 20 years: publishing, music, uh, journalism, you name it. And I have never, in my entire life, professional life, seen an industry as fucking stupid in the way it works as Hollywood. Hence, Rob Fishman, who is sitting across from me. And we're going to get into all of this in a second, and I'm going to explain more. So Rob, you you had a company, you sold to Twitter, and now you have a company that you're doing in Hollywood. Give us like the 140-character version of that.
2: I will try. Uh, we look at ourselves as a coming of age network, similar to what you might have seen on the WB 20 years ago. We make uh, teen-oriented shows that uh, are distributed for free online for a large audience of Gen Z viewers.
0: So, what makes you different? It's a couple of a couple of things. One is that you didn't start out in Hollywood. You started out in tech. Uh, you had a company that you that you ran that you sold to Twitter. You were there for a couple of years. That's the first thing. And the second thing is you're trying, and I would say successfully trying, to break the traditional studio model where you're not going through the same routes that most people go through. So I, we're going to get to all of that, but I want to start by kind of backing up a little bit and painting the room for how Wasteful, I guess Hollywood is, and how um how many problems it has as an industry, and how it got there. And I'm curious if you want do you want to kick that off a little bit? Sure. I mean, you know, I can can speak from what I know, which
2: is probably limited compared to most people who are actually from and and really deep in Hollywood. But you know, in some ways we're not traditional, but in other ways we're like ultra traditional. When I really came out here and started thinking about how we could do. Television quality production at a price point that could become a sustainable business in the online era. Uh, I was pointed back to the studio system from you know the the last century, from the beginning of the last century, twenties and the thirties, and I uh, was recommended books like *The Genius of the System* and. Uh, you know, they talked about MGM and all these studios that were starting then, which were really vertically integrated and everyone was kind of on staff on payroll.
0: So wait, so back then they had essentially, um, they had a writer's room, right? They owned yep. all, the, all the equipment. They they had the lots, they had the, the extras, they had all these things. And yet today, it's the complete opposite where they go out, they buy scripts, they throw 90% of them away. It's just like all waste to kind of, to get one thing to market. That may be successful. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in many
2: industries, there, with the advent of technology, there's been a move toward consolidation and, and verticalization. And from what I can tell, over the last hundred years, it's been a the opposite. It's been a movement of fragmentation and
0: inefficiency in Hollywood. Correct. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody said to me the other day, I was talking to a, a, a big movie exec, and I said, um, <clears throat> I was like, I don't get how the system works the way it does. And he was explaining to me, and he said, you know, how do you think you make a billion dollars in Hollywood? And I was like, how? And he said, you show up here with 10 billion. <laughs> and, uh, which I thought was a clever, funny line. But, but what he was saying was that, you know, this is one of the few industries, I guess you could say banking is different, but it's one of the few industries where uh, the same companies that ran it a hundred years ago, still run it today, the same studios, but that it seems like there is this finally something that's kind of about to change where, you know, I don't know if it's going to be the way, the way content is made, but maybe it is. I mean, one thing that I always think about is with Netflix, everyone says, Oh, Netflix changed Hollywood. They haven't changed a fucking thing. They've changed the way you get your content. The way it's made is exactly the same. Right. I mean, I think that people like Netflix have verticalized, uh, Large
2: chunks of the value system, in terms of how content is distributed, and you know, frankly, have flattened out a lot of uh, sub industries that existed in that part of the value chain. But I would agree with you when you look at the early piece of it, which is how are projects developed, how are they produced and edited. That part remains sort of mired in a and
0: uh, you know an antiquated model. So why wh- why is it that that the model exists that like when you look at let's just say book publishing for a second um, in book publishing, you write a you write a proposal, you have an agent, you go out there you, you you get ten people maybe that are interested, three people bid one person buys the the book, you write it if it's a shitty book, they'll print two thousand copies if it's a great book, they print fifty thousand copies and 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 so on and so forth. It is a loss leader industry like most creative industries, where five percent of the books pay for ninety five percent of the failures, which is fine. Um, but yet, in in Hollywood, you have an industry where uh, most things are they, they are designed not even to get to the point of publishing. And how I don't the part I don't understand is is why. Well, I think there are models of scarcity and models
2: of abundance. And, you know, when I used to work at the Huffington Post or wrote for BuzzFeed, you know, the idea was that you would publish a ton of articles and that the cost of each article was low and whatever bubbled up to the top would go viral and kind of pay for the rest of them. And I I think that that's true of Hollywood too, which is like one big movie that's a blockbuster pays for your losses. But, you know, I think that 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 was a model of abundance and Hollywood sort of a model of scarcity where there's, you know, some sort of limited pool of resources and the studios are not making that many movies a year. They're, you know, at least for a long time, the network only had so many slots that they were going to run each night of programming. And so I don't know, you know, I think that the short answer to your question is that TV shows and movies are a lot more expensive to make than books or journalism or any of those other fields.
0: But they're expensive to make because Hollywood chooses to make them expensive to make. Like, for example, what is the what are the statistics about how much it costs a minute to make content and things like that? Well, yeah, I mean, what's interesting is, and you know, this gets back to what we were talking about
2: before, about what we're trying to do differently, which is make things for a few thousand dollars a minute as opposed to a few hundred thousand dollars a minute, which is you know fairly standard out here, fifty thousand, seventy five thousand, a 100,000. And even for the new startups... And when I say startups, I mean the Netflixes or what Jeffrey Katzenberg is doing, uh, who are you know supposedly challenging the model. The cost per minute is is in some cases the same, some cases higher, some cases a little bit lower. But it's not a
0: disruptive price point. So the uh, so what you're, so the thing that I found so fascinating was when I came to your to your office studio, whatever it is, uh, you have you have a little studio. Uh, you have a small group of set designers. You own your own camera equipment and lighting equipment, and all these things. Now, if you were to go onto a movie set um, or a TV set, like I, you know, go to them all the time for work. Um, it's you know, I, here's a, a funny little anecdote. A friend of mine told me who was working on a, a show. Uh, they. They needed, um, I believe it was like metal detectors. Uh, They were in in the middle of shooting a TV show, and someone said, the director or somebody said, we might might try using metal detectors tomorrow on the shoot, so we should get some. But they weren't allowed to buy them because the union says that you can't buy these things, so they had to rent them. And they were like $5,000 a day for like three metal detectors. And then because they got the metal detectors, they had to have a metal detector expert come and – uh, and because they got the metal detector expert, it was like it pushed the number of people on set over, so they had to get an additional food truck and an additional and all these different things and next thing and they didn't even use the metal detectors and the guy was telling me it was like an extra hundred thousand dollars they must have spent as a result of this it's it's almost like the the system is designed to waste money, whereas if someone were to kind of rethink it, couldn't they do it for a lot less money well, I mean that 's what we 've tried to
2: prove to ourselves. I mean, I, look, I think that one of the things that makes Hollywood a special place is how many middlemen there are here to execute anything, right? And, you know, when you first come to Hollywood, you say to a writer like yourself, wow, you have a manager, an agent, a lawyer, a business manager, all these people, and that's just for a, a single sole proprietor. And writ large, when you look at Hollywood, there are guilds and agencies and, and, you know, who knows what kind of making every production, all of those people are obviously taking their cut of whatever. So, you know, it's not a system, I think, designed for efficiency. It's a system designed for a a lot of different players out here who subsist off these
0: projects to earn a good living. So, do you think that when when I look at um, the way technology disrupted all these other industries, you know, one thing that let's just take music, the simple, simplest one, you used to have to buy a, a whole CD, and one of the things they did was they were like, "Hey, you know what? Apple came along. And they said you can buy one song. Wow, that's a huge, amazing idea." Um, with uh, publishing, it was it was oh you can you can download it onto a device rather than have to go buy the hardcover or the paperback and wait for the paperback. What do you think is going to happen with technology f- in the in the near future? Because I have ideas, of course, of what will happen in the far future that we can get to that will will actually start to change the industry.
2: I think it's a really good question. I mean, I think that there remains a floor to where you can produce. You know, premium content at. And that floor is still expensive when you think about internet dollars. It's not expensive when you think about Hollywood dollars. Like I was saying to you the other day, we're in a funny spot where I think most people from Silicon Valley who back media companies, for instance, would look at our bottom line and say, whoa, like per minute, you're spending a lot more than a BuzzFeed or a Vice or folks who are you know spitting out articles and kind of digital video. Whereas someone from Hollywood would look at that same P&L and say, oh my God, like I spent that much on the first five minutes of one of my episodes as you spent the entire year, you know? And so that th- there's a, a huge amount of white space between what's seen as like digitally attractive versus what's seen as something that could be on Netflix or on HBO.
0: So do you think that um, uh, when you look at the, the way content is created right now, that Th- that the, while the Netflix and the Amazon have changed the way it's distributed, do you think that they will actually go after trying to change the way that it is created too? Or are they just like, it's just whatever? Well,
2: I I, I think that's a good question. I think we're sort of in the early stages of, um, of, of disruption of television and film where we're seeing people you know, sort of innovate at the higher end, you're seeing a lot of people who want to be the next HBO, right? A lot of people, if, you know, HBO has their dragons, then Amazon's getting their Lord of the Rings. And I'm sure Netflix is following fast with with their epic sci-fi fantasy uh, series. What you're not seeing, and what I actually think is the most interesting part of this, is if you look at the last hundred years of what thrived on, you know, the boob tube, it was soap operas and cable TV and and sitcoms and things that actually... We're not that expensive to produce from a below below the line kind of physical perspective. And you know that's where I see us and a, and a few other uh, upstarts. but uh, generally speaking, I don't see a lot of people trying to take the lower end of physical production, which I think actually accounted for the uh, most mind share on the television set and bring that online. So, um, And I think, you know, as a corollary, I, I think that that's where you'll be able to find the most efficiencies, build the biggest audiences, and through advertising, you know, create successful business models. I think if you're just taking dragons from the silver screen to the TV screen to the Netflix screen, there's only so much you can do in your cost model no matter where people are watching it.
0: Uh, one thing that is, uh, is really fascinating is when you, you, you mentioned to me, a, uh, was it Crypt TV? So yeah, t- tell us a, a friend, little bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, my friend Jack's
2: company. They, you know, I look at them as kind of a peer in the space. They do short form horror videos and they're backed by folks including Jason Blum. And you know, they have a slightly different model than than we do, but but fairly similar where they go to filmmakers who are either local or, you know, a little farther away and give them a budget that makes sense in a digital uh ecosystem and they're able to create characters like the Birch and, and others that have become wildly popular on Facebook or YouTube and do that without, you know, being universal making a two hundred million dollar
0: horror movie. And how much what are, do they don't they like just give money to people and say, just do it in the Midwest and places like that, and then the, the content comes back? Is that how it works?
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for exactly how they do physical production, because I'm sure it's changed, but uh, you know I think they film some stuff kind of quote-unquote in-house, and, and some of it's more distributed, and, and they avail themselves of, of kind of passionate horror filmmakers who may be here or may
0: not be. So one thing, so if I, let's just say that I was to do a movie, I'm going to come up with a movie right now. It's Rob Fishman and Nick Bilton go to Middle Earth, because we want to have some dragons. Are, are you Gandalf and I'm the Hobbit? Uh, we could do that, um, and um, uh, you're a producer. So let's just say, so we, we we can go along, and we could make our, we could go and try to sell it to like Warner or Netflix or something like that. But we we couldn't. So we got a little bit of money. We got like a million dollars, let's say, and we're going to dress in costumes right now, and we're going to go shoot it. And and the option is that we could try to sell it to a distributor, a buyer. Uh, the, the, of course, no one wants because it's not that good of a movie. Or we could put it on YouTube, and given that it's us and how famous we are in uh, the the tween market, let's just say it gets a billion views. Is that a potential distribution model that could kind of disrupt the way Hollywood works today?
2: Maybe at a billion views. The problem is at a million or even ten million views. No, because it's because not even enough if you're eyeballs. Doing, it's not a, well it's more than enough eyeballs i mean someone told me the other day for if you and i had mentioned this to you if you're in good shape on a youtube or a facebook for every hour that someone watches you you might expect to make 3 or 4 cents wait so you make
0: 3 cents if someone watches your shows for an hour
2: Right. I mean, compare that to a Captain Marvel, where someone goes for an hour and a half and they pay, how much is a movie taken now? 20, 25 bucks? Who knows? That size, pr- price of a Cheerios, we should ask uh, right. CEO of Starbucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but you, you know, people talk about digital dimes and analog dollars. It's oftentimes more like digital pennies. And you know, the the challenge is that the social media platforms are incredible. They're great places to build an audience, but very hard to build a business because they have not yet invested in the sort of business models that support premium content. So look, if you can make the next, the next Despacito, which is like, you know, something on YouTube that's done, I don't know how many billion or whatever. What is
0: Despacito? I'm aging myself. uh, It's a, it's a music video or, you know, like, Oh, got it. The one that got like a trillion billion views. Yeah, exactly. You know,
2: sure. Then that's a workable model, but like if you want to run a high production business on somewhere like YouTube, you need to be spitting out video
0: after video that, that, Breaks and rebreaks and breaks anew the internet. But isn't there... Is, so w- one of the challenges right now for people that are trying to disrupt Hollywood is that the distribution methods are that you have to go through the same distributors that you... Through the gatekeepers. Through the gatekeepers. And the gatekeepers, I mean, I know people who have insane amounts of funding for their companies and e- and even if they have a star and a director and everything attached, the gatekeepers can still say no because we don't want to distribute it. Right. How do you change that? So
2: I think, you know, there's one model that is sort of working is you become and you know you could list a bunch off your off the top of your head I'm sure is people who are using YouTube or the free internet to build a big audience and then convert that into a sale to an HBO show or a Netflix show right I think you know there are stand-up comedians and there are musicians and podcasts and podcasters who are who are basically leveraging the audience that they develop for free into those kind of gatekeeper approved deals where they're Making so-called real money, right? So that's that's one model. But you know, in terms of is there a future? Is there a near-term future where uh, people can totally bypass Hollywood and and make real money? uh, I think the jury is still out. You know, you have to be someone like our like our company is investing in a huge direct ad sales team because that's how we're going to make money. It's not readily like if we were just. You know, we did close to three billion minutes watch last year. And I say that not to pat myself on the back, but just to say it's a lot of billion minutes watch. And like without going out and <clears throat> selling the ads ourselves,
0: there's no way we're gonna, you know, make ends meet. Uh we actually did three billion minutes on, on Nick Nick and Rob went to Middle Earth uh just watched last week. So, so now we're patting now, myself on the back. Now we're too. making a sequel. <laughs> the Two Towers. Um, all right. So, 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 someone who there are very few people, I think, who come from uh, Silicon Valley and um, and then eventually come to uh, to Hollywood to, to 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 start companies here. What are some of if you were kind of looking at ways in which Silicon Valley might disrupt Hollywood, and we're starting to see the beginnings of it. I mean, first of all, you've got. You have the Amazon, Amazons and Netflix. You have Apple, Facebook, YouTube, and things like that. What do you think it is that they will do to try to disrupt this industry. because So I was at dinner the other night with a couple of people from Hollywood, uh, and they will probably be listening, and they were saying, oh, people come to this town all the time saying they're going to change it, and it never happens. And my response to them is, I heard that about the music industry and journalism and publishing right before it was disrupted. And when I look at this industry and I just see how wasteful and ridiculous it is, it just seems like it's just, I don't know if it's days, weeks, months, or years away, but it is going to happen. How do you think that Silicon Valley will actually end up having an impact?
2: It's a its a really good question. I mean, I think ultimately gatekeepers subsist on barriers to entry, and the cost of entry in this case is cost, right? You need money. Like, we're not going to make our Hobbit movie without that million dollars to fund it, even if we're able to find a workable business model. And, you know, most people aren't able to—, to take a million dollars of disposable income to make a movie, right? So as long as it costs a lot to make projects, even you know if it's $500,000, it's still a lot, then the gatekeepers will continue to exist. So then the question becomes, is there hardware that's coming or is there uh, some sort of software that's coming that's going to make premium content creation easier. And I think that to an extent it's been, you know, democratized. You think about like Casey Neistat biking around New York City with his his camera and creating, you know, pretty – and then editing him, them themselves and making really great YouTube videos. But by and large, right, when you're going to have a crew and film a real show, you, you need a crew. And, you know, I look at I, – I went a, a few months ago to see um, – the red cameras that they develop, which are kind of what Peter Jackson filmed Lord of the Rings on, and they were developing some incredible stuff. And, you know, you see um, Samsung and these other companies developing mobile phones that maybe can replace uh, camera rigs and lights. But, you know, I I, I don't know that that the iPhone is going to replace the 30-person TV crew anytime soon.
0: But Steven Soderbergh just did a movie where he shot the whole thing on an iPhone, didn't he? Was that Yeah, but I bet you if
2: you looked at the budget for that, it was low, but not the kind of budget where you and I are going to go shoot a movie on our iPhones. You are listening to Inside the Hive with
0: Nick Bilton. All right, don't get jealous, ladies and gentlemen, but I am sitting here right now with a New Yorker tote bag, and you too can have one of those if you sign up for The New Yorker, and they have a special, special, special deal for Hive listeners this week. So The New Yorker represents some of the best writing in America today. Beyond just publishing the best writers in the world, The New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling, both online and in print. The New Yorker covers a full range of topics from politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment popular culture, the arts, fictions, food, humor, and of course, the thing that gets me up in the morning and makes me want to pick up the magazine, the cartoons. They are the best. Uh, the New Yorker, um, every people there, you know, they write beautifully. They write incredibly deep dives on topics that you normally wouldn't even think that you could even write a couple of words about like paper jams and fault lines and heirloom beans and stink bugs. An amazing article you should go read. Uh, they have some of the greatest writers around uh, that have all won Pulitzers and all sorts of different uh, prizes. Um, you've got Helen Rosner, James Beard Award-winning food writer. You have uh, Hilton Enns, the theater critic. You have, of course, Ronan Farrow, who broke all the big stories on Harvey Weinstein and Les Mumbes. Um It's an amazing magazine. It's an amazing website. They publish constantly uh, new stories every day. Um, they have a special offer for us Hive listeners Not only do you get a tote bag, uh, but you can also get 12 weeks for just $6 plus. The New Yorker tote bag. Uh, you get home delivery of the print edition each week. Uh, unlimited access to thenewyorker.com where they publish 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every single day. Uh, access to their apps, online archives, crossword puzzles, and more. Uh, go to newyorker.com slash hive and you will get 50% off when you enter the code hive. That's newyorker.com slash hive just $6, less than the price of a cup of coffee. And trust me, I've already had 17 cups of coffee today. Uh, you can get The New Yorker for just $6, 12 issues, and 50% off. All right, so when uh, earlier this year, or the last couple of years, we've seen this instance happen where stars no longer sell big TV shows or big movies. You've seen flop after flop after flop with $20, $40 million budgets that were just, on, just spent on... Jennifer Lawrence and Chris, what's his face, and all these people that are that used to ins- ensure that a movie would be successful and no longer are. So I have a, I have two questions here, um, and I'll I'll ask them back to back. So one is, do you think that the star is essentially on the decline uh, in Hollywood because they they don't guarantee a a hit anymore? A and B, we are about to enter an era where. Um, you're, and you already started to see it in Star Wars, where certain actors are not real. They're CGI, they're, they're computer-generated. And we're about to enter an era where that it, the technology is going to be so good, in fact, I think it's like 99% there already, that you won't know who's real and who's not, and therefore you will start to see films and TV shows where there are not actors. Do you think that the star is kind of coming to the end a Star is Dead? A Star is Dead. <laughs> that
2: could be our third movie. That's the movie.
0: title for our uh, third movie, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that
2: there's a systemic reason, you know, to answer your first question, which is that, you know, at least for the time being, windowing is tougher because places like Netflix are, you know, buying out projects. Explain what windowing is again. In other words, you know, a the, the star-driven project used to, you would air it um, for the first time domestically on TV, and then because such a big name was in it, you could sell foreign rights and elsewhere, and people would pay to run that show or run that movie in foreign territories. You know, now if Netflix is buying or or incubating the project, right, and, and holding it in perpetuity, that windowing doesn't exist. So you're not, you know, you would have a star and get paid over and over and over again for that star power. So I think that that's probably one factor in this. But then from the other end, your question about the stars matter as much as legitimate. And, you know, when I look, even in our sort of demographic neck of the woods, which is young adult, I look at what Netflix is doing with Stranger Things or The Kissing Booth, you know, they're able to take virtually um, unknown young talent, put them on screen. And I'm sure you and a bunch of people saw the article of how their Instagram following has increased since they've been, since uh, those kids have been on Stranger Things. And we see the same effect on our shows where, you know, someone's on Chicken Girls and, they gain a million followers over the year. And so that, I, I think when you, when you asked the earlier question about is Netflix disrupting the process, you know, it's not necessarily that talent doesn't matter, but you don't necessarily need to pay the premium to get huge talent in your project. If you have the kind of built-in distribution that places like Netflix do, you can take raw talent and turn them into big names that you effectively control because they're, you know, you, you um,
0: introduce them. Do you, so do you think that do you think that we're going to hit a point pretty soon where you're going to start to see TV shows and movies and things that are made where uh, the actors are not real actors and that they are CGI versions of them?
2: Well, I was going to say, I mean, more and more, I watch things on, on Netflix and elsewhere where I don't offhand, you know, maybe I'll recognize a few of the actors, but I don't know who they are. And, you know, I was thinking of uh, Umbrella Academy I just watched, and a lot of those characters were, you know, there was a chimpanzee and other people who, you know, they weren't People who are CGI—that wasn't a real chimpanzee that was speaking <laughs> the whole
0: time. <laughs>
2: That's how they're doing the international rights based on, uh, on the chimp who played. It. No, but I, I think that you know whether those are like obviously Carrie Fisher was recreated in that other Star Wars movie, and you know I I, I don't know how far off that is, and I'm sure that there will be a world of. Legal pain when people are negotiating for someone's digital likeness, but I think that and all of these things we've been talking about are contributory factors in changing the the star system and the packaging system that's existed for the last bunch of decades.
0: So, um, one other thing that I keep thinking a lot about is is um, you know we you can see with uh, with books for the first time that um, in Kindle, let's say you, let's say if you ten years ago you wrote a book. And the book, um, you put it out there, and it didn't do well. Um, You wouldn't know why. You just know it didn't do well. Uh, uh, What you wouldn't know specifically was that maybe it was a 20-chapter book, and the first 18 chapters were the greatest things on earth, and the last two were garbage, and therefore no one finished it and recommended to anyone else. But with the Kindle, you can see as an author, and even if you're not the author, you can see where people stop reading. Uh, And there's people that are exploring the idea of like, okay, well, do we re-release the book if people stop reading after Chapter 7 and rewrite Chapter 7 because we understand there's something wrong with it? You could imagine if Amazon really wanted to that they could allow you to do that on the fly as you're kind of getting feedback back. Do you think that when you apply the Silicon Valley model to to Hollywood that we could end up in a situation where um, we are – editing and redistributing and and repackaging films and TV shows with, maybe it's with CG actors, maybe it's not, uh, um, on the fly based on different people's preferences?
2: Yeah, I mean, the sort of choose your own adventure and, and make your own adventure is, I think, an intriguing one. You know, due to the way that things are shot, Uh, with block shooting and kind of finding all these efficiencies, sometimes those efficiencies are the enemy of doing what you're talking about, which is, you know, you film a project over 30 days, and it's certainly not in any order from a script chronology perspective. And so by the time the thing's done, it's done. Now, the question of after it's done, you release it and you recut it. You know, I think that... To go back to what we were saying earlier, for these other types of media where it's just cheaper to make them, it's also cheaper to remake them and to recut them. And, you know, there's a difference, I think, between going in and editing versus, you know, every movie you hear people saying, oh, I'm doing reshoots for 20 days. And those are probably as expensive, if not more, than, you know, what those days would have been on the principal shoot. So, you know, I think that these kind of frontier technologies that you're talking about, whether it's CGI or remixing projects, are sound great in practice, but I I don't know that they ultimately implicate the fundamental
0: uh, cost structure of, of why Hollywood projects cost so much. One thing that you hear a lot about is, um, is that you'll, you'll see a, a, an idea and someone will write a script and they'll get paid a couple hundred grand to do it and then they bring in someone else to, who's a huge name to rewrite it and they get paid a million dollars and then another person redoes it, a million and a million and a million and this and then it just sits on a shelf for ten years and then they scrap it and start over and is that because the industry I understand that okay if you're going to do a big movie and it's going to cost you tens of millions of dollars you want to make sure you get it right but when i look at you know when you look at the journalism industry for example you could spend a year working on a story or you could spend um a week working on a story and there are some stories that deserve a year but most stories that do not and my belief is that the end product is going to be pretty similar and is do you think that there's a system there's a there's a, a system of waste that is built in for a reason or is this just that people that don't know what they're doing.
2: I think the reason is is in part to breed you know strong quality projects, but in part it is to keep the gatekeepers alive. Right? I mean the model of we'll make a bunch of stuff and throw it against the wall and see what the audience like is a very kind of internet, new age-driven philosophy. And it's more similar to what, you know, a BuzzFeed or Huffington Post or any of those folks do, right? Or any tech startup. Any tech startup, right? It's like, let's try a bunch of things. Let's be iterative. Let's beta test. Move fast and break things. Move fast, break things. And I think, right, move fast, break things is really interesting because I think the the, uh, ideal of Hollywood is move slowly and break nothing except, you know, box office numbers. And so... I I don't think that—I think, you know, the more and more there's a democracy of choice and of filmmakers and creatives, the less and less relevant these people who control the studios and the agencies are. And so, yeah, there's an inherent and endemic uh, motivation for them to keep these— Productions tight and and to not allow everything that gets made to be seen and so projects
0: some you know do sit around and, and turn around for years or decades and I, th- I think that's all part of the system. So it's so essentially what this all comes down to is the reason of the the reason for all the inefficiency here is because of the gatekeepers that have designed it to be so.
2: Well, right. I mean, I think Silicon Valley has gatekeepers in its own sort of hidden in a, an obscure way, but you know, what From what we see from the user perspective is like, we've created a platform and you guys should use it however you want and we're not ourselves, you know, we the platform's going to uh, interject unless you break certain rules. I, I think the Hollywood system is is almost the mirror image, which is you're going to be the consumer who sits in the movie theater and we're going to pick a very few projects to show you and we will define taste
0: and, you know, define culture and, and you'll watch. And, and that's how we have... Some of these diabolical, terrible movies that no one goes to see and that flop at the movie theater and so on. Sure. And, and you know, I think, like, you could say the same thing about social media.
2: Every 99 out of 100 posts you read on Twitter or Facebook, you're like, gosh, I sure wish I hadn't seen that. And then you see one thing and you're like, oh, well, that was actually really interesting. So I, I'm not sure that the hit
0: ratio is all that different. It's just kind of coming through a different model. When you look at the so you've done a lot of work with with, with data um, in when you were at Twitter and places like that, do you think that data can inform the kinds of things that are made or the way that they're made, or is it is it not applied to that?
2: Uh, I'm generally pretty skeptical. I, I think you can use data to inform you know demographics or what talent is picking up steam or uh, you know any of these other variables, but in terms of like what makes a hit, I think, and, you know, you would know this better than I would. You're writing these projects out here. Like, it's really hard. I think that, you know, the hardest thing to automate is creativity. And, um, you know, even for our own shows, I'm often surprised at what seems to really do well versus what I think is going to do well. And we have, you know, talent who's oftentimes native to the internet. We're on the internet. We have all of the numbers coming in. And, like, you know, I think that there's something to be said for whatever
0: it is that just connects with fans. So your company, Brat, um, is uh you specialize in YA am I allowed to say the word tween? Is that is that a I, I think is that, that I, a legal word? Uh, I don't even know. We
2: certainly have a you know a lot of tweens who watch our shows and you know there are tweens in the shows. I think, you know, coming of age, young adult is probably the right sort of
0: And sh- so you're you're how old are you? Thirty-three. So how did you end up deciding to go after the young adult tween market because that would be the last place i would probably go
2: no i think that's a great question i mean you know a, a part of it gets back to what we've been talking about earlier i mean you know part of it was what we saw at our last company which was you know specifically young adults were not watching television anymore so we well, saw your last company was our, our last company was called niche it did a lot of the uh, marketing for digital talent and 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 helping them run brand. campaigns acquired by
0: twitter yeah
2: so, you know, we we spent a lot of time with these uh, digitally native pieces of talent who themselves and their fans were just not watching television anymore. And so that sort of inspired a lot of our thinking and then, you know, we thought back to like the John Hughes movies and uh, the Brat Pack and said, "Hey, there's something that's missing from this generation." And, and that's what kind of inspired us. But I forget your original question was Oh, so so was uh, what made you oh, YYA. To be, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know, having spent some time with and learned from you know Jack Davis at Crypt TV, or even Jason Blum, who makes movies. You know from a notoriously good price point and makes oodles of money. You know the reason horror movies, from what I understand, work is because you don't necessarily need these huge names attached. Because you just they, have
0: to scare the they shit. All out get, of they all
2: get killed anyway. Exactly, you all have to get scared. And the other genre that. Uh, you're able to pull off on a relatively good price point is, is, is YA, is high school movies. And, you know, I think that's what was the fun of the John Hughes movies, was not that there was robots or dragons or any other kind of CGI. They were just great kind of iconic coming-of-age stories. And so, you know, that was also part of it. It was the idea that we could, uh, you know, look at... Like a Roger Corman-inspired production model, and actually tell good What's stories. What's a
0: Roger Corman-inspired production model?
2: So that you know, he was sort of the king of B movies and uh, was able to just produce on a real budget, like on a real, real
0: budget. And and uh, and so his his model uh, and the B movie model and everything. Why did it go away Be- again? Because of the gatekeepers, or? Well,
2: I think it kind of comes back to what we were saying before about, you know, soap operas and all of these unsexy formats of entertainment that are a lot more cost conscious, but really like connect with an audience in a more day to day way that aren't splashy. And I think that, uh, you know, the roads sort of diverge where now it's either the Avengers or it's a, uh, you know, political video with some chyrons that that is thrown up on Facebook. And that's where I think we've gone so high low that uh, we're really missing the vast middle. And I actually think that middle is what was the connective tissue for most of the country. And when I think about, you know, what's wrong with everything today, I actually think that that's a big piece of it, is that we're missing the kind of bread-and-butter entertainment that really everyone congregated around. And do you think that that can come back? Yeah, I do. I think, like, I mean, I think people like us or Crypt or any of these companies are starting to think about how do we make entertainment that is affordable and uh, you know achievable and that we can run through the phone and, and modern means of distribution without breaking the bank that that mass audiences actually do look at and you know that's kind of like the, the provide touchstones for these generations who are now coming of age because you know when you and I grew up in you know, I don't want to lump you into my generation as your Gandalf. But, I'm pretty close, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think we can all remember like those iconic moments from Saved by the Bell or Dawson's I w- I Creek. Watched, I watched. I didn't I watch did. Dawson's Creek, but I did watch Saved by the Bell. You know, I'm so excited. I'm so scared. Like, and and then I think you look at people who are growing up today, and they maybe have never watched anything that the person next to them has watched because they're all you know watching different things. And so I, I think that that common sense and common ground entertainment is something that really needs to come back into the conversation. So
0: years ago, actually about a decade ago, uh, not about a decade ago, exactly a decade ago, I came out to California to work on my first book, which no one should read. Uh, and it was about looking at the future of media. This was, you know, no one was using Twitter. No one was really on Facebook or anything like that. It was um, it was all very esoteric at the time. And I came out here kind of looking at different industries, Uh, to kind of identify what was going to happen to the media industry. And the industry that I specifically came out to look at was the porn industry. I know you've never looked at porn. I've never looked at porn, so I don't know a lot about it. But what I did hear, and it was pretty fascinating back then, was they were always – the porn has always, of course, been at the forefront of everything with uh, VHS tapes and and DVDs and 800 numbers and this, that, and the other. And so I wanted to see what technologies they were using at the time that could kind of – look at the future of media and there was a lot of stuff that i don't need to get into but there was stuff that there was one thing specifically that i found fascinating and they said that you will that what they were starting to do was create um content for a billion different audiences so if you're into uh people who wear stockings and glasses while having sex like they if that was your thing 10,000 people would pay for that. And if you were into, you know, there's a a whole porn thing called like Pirates of the Caribbean, but it's a different name. I forget what it is, but like there there are families, not families, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, husbands and wives that will watch that together. And they were saying that if you create these these 10,000 different genres, people will pay for it, which was happening. And And I always wondered how, and and I think that that is true in some respects for media today. We have a million different kinds of media. You can get, you know, things on any different kind of content you want. Do you think that that is ever going to apply to the kind of film television industry? And and just one last part of that is, you know, if you watch The Cosby's or a show like that, 20, 30 years ago, 60, 70 million people tuned into that. Today, if 3 million people tune into Breaking Bad, that's a huge, huge hit. And so it looks like we're going towards this thing where you have a smaller audience to have a bigger hit. Do you think that we'll get to a point where you could see, um, you know, 10,000 different projects a year uh, that are designed for for little esoteric audiences? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll answer your first question with sort of a funny story. When we were starting our company and trying to pilot out a lot of these concepts, we were looking to film things in really cheap locations. And the advice I got was to go up to, you know, up north of Hollywood and someone said, Oh, you can get great studio space in Chatsworth. I didn't know what Chatsworth was. But among other things, it's apparently where, you know, many of the pornography films are made because of their cheap production. And, you know, we went up there, it was pretty seedy. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, we picked fine places to film our shows. But, you know, uh, in the middle of one of our shoots, one of the talent who was on our shows, who was, you know, an, an actor had done a campaign recently for through my old company through niche, which was part of Twitter. And someone on the set told him that I'd started that company and sold it. And, you know, he said, like, what the hell are you doing up here? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I actually, I, you know, I, I, I always hear about how, um, you know, the pornography industry is, like, leading the way in terms of uh, technology development, but I think that the economies that, uh, of scale and, and and the way that they're able to um, find efficiencies of cost is, in, in a one small way at least, was instructive of, like, find locations and, and do things at a, at a price where you can, you know eventually recoup a profit and i think like that's a model that everyone needs to learn and i think that as we you know move into the age of all these streaming services who are who are trying to go direct to consumer right and basically get you know cut through some of the the fat and say you're going to pay us directly and we're going to make these shows for you on our service all of those folks are going to need to figure out how to make lower cost programming because there isn't going to be like windowing like we talked about before, and you're going to need to make a product and figure out how to get people to pay for it, which is what, you know, without necessarily having billions of dollars of debt eventually. And so I think that, um, you know, we are all going to have to learn to be scrappier. And I think that to me, that's the kind of key takeaway. And your second question was,
0: well, I think it's just, the question is, I guess you, I, I, you know, you hearing you talk about Netflix repeatedly, I guess kind of answers that, you know, everyone makes fun of Netflix cause there's a, this is like a, hundred new shows a week and everyone's like, what the hell? Who would watch well, that? But it's, it's, well, I think, I mean, I, I do think, Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, I
2: think, look, everyone has their own Netflix is kind of the theory there, right? That you have your Netflix and I have mine and it's not divided up into discrete networks. I, I personally, um, think things will and should go a little bit more in the other direction, which is back toward mass programming. I think that there's a lot of isolation and, and kind of tribalism and ugly feelings in the country because everyone's, you know, listening to and reading the things that they care about. And I, I hope that we return to an age of, uh, mass programming where people are all watching the same thing. And like, you know, to, to return for a second to what we're doing, you know, when we aired our holiday movie, which was a very cheery kind of um, Christmas special with a bunch of the stars from our show, YouTube allows you to premiere these things. So you can actually see how many people are waiting for it to go live. And there were almost 75,000 uh, of our viewers who are sitting around for like 10 minutes waiting for it. And, you know, I think that's, That's exciting for us, and it's uh, heartening to see because it means that—and there's a live chat going on, so they're all talking, right, about what's going to happen and talking about internet memes that I can barely grasp. But, you know, I think that we need more of that and less of everyone having their own personal window. So you
0: believe that part of the the problem with the country today uh, is as a result of the divide in media, too? hundred percent. I mean, I think it's probably a little more
2: pronounced on like the news media side than the entertainment side, but I think it's totally true of shows as well. Like if we're all watching our own shows and reading our own websites, like what are we talking about
0: with yeah. each other? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the big problem with like the Fox News MSNBC is yeah. that, you know, they're just yelling at, they're not yelling. They're just, they're justifying everyone's um, exact viewpoint, uh, and that's why you tune in. There should there, there should be like a thing where you where you turn on the TV and uh, and say you want to watch the news, and it it, it like scrambles through a right. uh, and just randomly lands on something, and that's the one you have to watch that night.
2: Yeah, I mean, you remember like even ten years ago, you would watch the Oscars, and everyone in the room had seen every movie. And now, when I go to an Oscars party. No one has seen any of the movies. And I I just think like there's something, and maybe I'm being nostalgic, but there's something sad about that.
0: Yeah. No, I hear you. All right, so if you could predict um, uh, what Hollywood will look like five years from now, what do you think it's going to look like? Or should we do 10 years from now?
2: (laughs) Well, I think on the five-year horizon, I'm not sure how different it's going to look. I think that... A lot of the streaming services, which are either replacing or consolidating with the studios, as we've sort of talked about, are doing things a little bit differently and a little more data-driven and, you know, changing the way that we consume content. But in terms of the industry here that's producing that content, like, it's been a golden age, right? You know, and I think when you go talk to uh, agents who are packaging showrunners into big deals with the streamers, like... There's never been more being made. And so obviously, you know, there's been this big debate over packaging these last few weeks. But, uh, but by and large, I actually think that it's um, emboldened a lot of what exists out here. What do you mean? The, the, the packaging has? No, sorry. The, the, the rise of, of digital streamers. Got it. Yeah, I, I yeah. think has in some ways been a, a lifeline for the industry out here rather than a disruptive force. Got it. But you know, in ten years, I think I think a lot of what happens in ten years will really depend. You know, the the bigger giants, obviously, in the space are the Amazons and the Facebooks and the YouTubes, and you know, I think that they've all, some of them, have been doing really interesting stuff in the Hollywood space. And you know, I was just with uh, my friend Ricky, who does Facebook Watch, and they have you know some incredibly successful hits like Red Table Talk, and that's become like you know, a national phenomenon, right? And I think if the Facebooks and YouTubes and Amazons and others and Apples, you know, are start to invest a little more heavily in building out ecosystems for professionalized content, you could see other pathways emerge where people are doing things differently. But right now, if you make a show for any of the places I just mentioned, I'm not sure the process is fundamentally that different from if you make a Project for
0: Paramount or Warner's. Do you think that um uh what was the last time you went to the movies, out of curiosity? I go to see Marvel movies. You do you I go mean, to that's see it. but you used to go to the movies a lot, right? Like sure like all of us. I yeah. I used to so the the, you know the, the and this this we all predicted years and years ago. Eventually, our televisions would get so big that there would be no point for us to go to the movies, and mm-hmm. um, and soon, the- soon our phones will get so big we'll have no point for the television, <clears throat> for television. And, uh, and then we'll put a little chip in our brain, and then we won't have anything any point for the phone. But eventually, the movie theater goes away, and there's a world in which some people talk about when they talk about like net neutrality and so on. There's a world in which the when the television, when the movie theater goes away, that and we have these massive TVs, that you could imagine that you could bypass the streamers too by having your own app or website or whatever that you can stream your. Maybe it's by this point making our movie. What was the movie called again? Uh, the Return of King Nick Bilton. The Return of No, it was. T- the journey to Middle Earth with Nick Bilton and Rob Fishman. Um, you can imagine that maybe we could do it because the red camera is cheaper, or the or the iPhone camera is so amazing, or whatever. Or there's an algorithm, like an app, just like you can edit photos now. There's one that will edit your movie together for you. Um, uh, do you think that we get to a point where we do see the opportunity for people to bypass those gatekeepers finally and um, and go straight to the consumer? Look, I mean. We're trying, right? But the hard reality is
2: when I talk to my head of production or my head of post-production or my head of development, you know, they still need people with expensive equipment and people with great talent and and so on to, to make these projects. And, you know, I think back to 10 years ago when I was working at the Huffington Post and there were like 20 of us sitting in a loft in Soho writing the news and you had one person who was the entertainment editor and they did 20 million uniques uh, by writing articles, maybe with them and one associate. And, you know, I just think that's so much harder to port into the entertainment space. I think that there's, of course, the rise of vlogging and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think for us to make our movie and send it direct to consumer, to people's home theaters, we still need to have some sort of ecosystem that either, you know, pays us or reimburses us or gets users to pay for it.
0: And I I don't know where that's coming from and, and when. Do you believe uh, VR is actually going to be a thing that people consume content on, or is it just going to be for video games?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I'm not an expert in it, but I would say making VR is a good example. Like that's so much more expensive than making you know, something for a single point of view. Right. So it's like some of these new technologies are incredible, but the cost of production to, uh, to, to make exciting things
0: for those, for those channels is, is, is astronomical. So if the price comes down though, will people want to, I mean, the question is, I guess, will will we want to get to a point where we slip on a headset to watch a movie with in our living room that you're immersed in in that way? I'm sure we will, but I
2: think that those will be made by highly specialized people who exist in ecosystems where either the consumers are, are paying a ton of money or the studios are financing them because they believe they can sell them for a ton of money.
0: All right, so uh, last couple of questions, and then we'll let you get back to, um, to your to your tweens. Um, uh, do you, if you were to look at the tech industry today, uh, and what they're gonna try to do in the next few years when they when they kind of come trouncing down to Los Angeles, do you think that there's anything that people aren't seeing that, that they'll do they'll be doing that um, is not so obvious right now? I think that's a good question. and I think the answer from my
2: point of view is that there are, incremental changes coming, but I think, you know, when you look at a YouTube who at first launched YouTube Red and rebranded as, I guess, YouTube Originals and, you know, recently, from what I've read, stopped making scripted content and is kind of, you know, going more back to maybe it's they're spending a little more on getting celebrities to post like Will Smith to post kind of vlog style content. I think that the results have been pretty mixed. And I think that the Silicon Valley players who have had great success in, you know, building products, building algorithms, and kind of letting those products do the work for themselves, have had a generally hard time making sense of what exists down here. You know, as I said, I, I impressed with like what Facebook does with Red Table Talk. And, you know, they've, I think our fi- Facebook Watch is like finding formats that really works and that makes sense on Facebook. But, you know, I think for most of us, if you look at at the Silicon Valley players, and you look at their content strategy and their output, it seems a little bit scattershot and uh you know I'm not exactly sure where they're going to make more investments because I'm not sure where like the big wins have been and, and where they can compete. Do you still use social media? I've definitely pulled back over the last year. I, I mean it it used to feel fun and now it feels
0: ugly. It feels awful.
2: <laughs> yeah. Which, which by the way, is even more of a reason
0: to kind of yeah. retreat into entertainment. That was what my next question was. Yeah. It's like, does that affect... I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I've always found so fascinating is you you go to these press conferences with Instagram or Facebook or even Netflix. I was there a few weeks ago for an event and, um, someone asked Reed Hastings, you know, what, who's your competitor? And he said, Fortnite, the the video game. And then he joked, you know, it's really just people's time. And I think that what's been so fascinating is that, um, years ago you would, it was TV shows were competing with TV shows and there was in a specific genre and time slot, and movies were competing with movies, and now everyone's competing with everyone. But it seems like we may go back to that. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh,
2: Snap held their summit last week, and it was really interesting because half of the stuff they were announcing were user-generated features like incredible new camera tools and you can make buildings jump out of the sky. But the other half were scripted shows, many of them sort of in our demographic or creator-driven shows, uh, you know, uh, which exists kind of on the Discover tab. And you can see like, hey, we're making shows and you're talking here. And I think that you know, that, that kind of duality will become more interesting. And I guess the, the real question is like, do users want more of the user-generated talk with friends stuff or do they want to watch quality entertainment?
0: Well, we will find out. Um, where can everyone find your your shows and whatnot on the internet?
2: Yeah, uh, most of our episodes are on YouTube, but we post
0: fun daily stuff on Instagram and Spotify and Amazon. So we, we what try. are the what are the names of the websites? I mean the the the, the hand what do what do we even call them anymore? Handles, handles. Yeah, what like, are your handles? We
2: sound like old people uh, on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Brat B R A T, and I think YouTube we have a Brat Y T for YouTube on the end. But generally, if you Look for
0: us. Uh, you can find us. Um, and uh, you use influencer tweens to on your shows that then go out and share everything, right? We we have a,
2: it, you know, that it's it kind of gets back to the question you were asking about. Netflix, you know, we have the star of our latest uh, popular show, Zoe Valentine is a girl named Anna Cathcart, who was the little sister unto all the boys I've loved before from Netflix. And she had been on a Disney show before that, you know, she now has a million Instagram followers, I think some people would say, Oh, she's an influencer. And other people would say she's an an actor, and she's both. And, you know, I think when we talk about some of the actual changes that are happening right now, I think this next generation of talent is going to uh, look like a lot of different things and not you know just one
0: so can I come on one of your why Y-O shows as like a uh, as a as an imperson. I could play myself as the uh, um, in Gandalf in Lord of the Rings Lord I could the- <laughs> see that
2: I could see maybe like a history teacher thanks I appreciate that <laughs> uh,
0: Rob thank you so much for coming on today this is a really fascinating conversation thank you for having me of course thanks to my guests this week Bess Levin and Rob Fishman if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen to and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. There are now well over a 100 of them. You can find these on Apple com, or any way you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors, H&R Block and The New Yorker Magazine. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you next week.